Big words to sing them, aren't they? Jesus, I want to live for you. You know, there's something inherent in human nature that actually says, I actually want to live for myself. And there's that constant tension within even those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus to desire to live for that which brings us the greatest comfort. I've got to confess before you this morning that sometimes I have, I find it really, really hard to sing some of those words, don't you? And really genuinely mean it. Because I'm, I'm one of these guys. I'm, I'm a scouser, can you tell? <laughs> but scousers are a bit straight talk and we say it as it is. But when I found Jesus, I also discovered that I need to live it as it is as well. And so we're going to say something. We're going to, by the grace of God, let us live it, Lord. Amen. We, we, we've sung some other sing songs before as well. We haven't had time for this, have we? But we've sung in other songs. Remember that, that song, I Love Amazing Grace. Beautiful words. The, the, the way they've changed it around as well. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the, the changes that we've done it for. Did, did you hear that, that refrain as we got towards the end when the sun ceases to shine? You know what that means, don't you? It means the day of the Lord is coming. It means the time of judgment is coming when that happens. I wonder how burdened we are for those people who are, lot, who, who are between us here at Walton and us at Holmgate. Because you, you, you're right, we, 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 were, we were the mother ship, the mother church. The bricks look very similar. And you know that funny little squiggle as well at the end of the song? That, that, that's similar as well. We have that as well. I've always wondered what that is. But it's a good indication to know that we're finishing soon so we get to sit down. Well, those people between us, you know? Those thousands of people who are going to that lost eternity. I wonder how burdened are we this morning that we might be living our lives, not for ourselves, but that we might be living our lives that Jesus may be glorified in us and through us. With this in mind, let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we praise and thank you in Jesus' precious name for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it is a light to our path. Lord, it is food for our hungry souls. As you, you fed your people in the wilderness manna from heaven, that miraculous food that just came down, Father, we praise and thank you that we too this day are fed from the truth of your word. Oh, that we may receive your manna this day, that we may feed on it, and that we may be nourished that we may be equipped for all that you've got for us this coming week. So help us now, Father, in Jesus' precious name, that the words that I would speak and the meditation of all of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight, our Lord Redeemer and our friend. Amen. Can I just say, I do bring you greetings from the fellowship at Holmgate as well. Uh, we've been here just four months and we've discovered that the natives are very friendly. Um, I, I was born and bred in Liverpool, that I moved into missionary service many years ago um, after I was saved, and I returned home. I left as a young 17-year-old man, and I came back as a married man with a child and one on the way. Um, and we eventually moved from Liverpool over to Wallasey, and there 
in New Brighton. I've been for the last 18 years, pastoring a fellowship there. And so we've been here for four, four months now, and I've got to know the natives and understand also the close links that once were true of the, our two fellowships. And can I just say, I do hope and pray that in, in the days ahead, as Andy comes and settles in, that our, our, our strength, our, our ties will be strengthened again for, for the gospel's sake. Uh, we need one another in these days. We really, really do. And uh, whilst I bless God that, you know, you are an independent fellowship and we're no longer dependent on one another, there is a mutual um, fellowship for the sake of the gospel, which I'd love us to strengthen together in the days ahead. One of the greatest figures in church history was a man called William Tyndale. He lived from 1494 to 1536. So you can put it in your mind, the days of Henry VIII, that's when it was, and Martin Luther as well. He was known as the father of the English Bible. In fact, Tyndale is said to have been the greatest English Bible translator who ever lived. He's one of the first, not only because of the invention of the print and press was around about that time, but he was one of the first also to actually translate the scriptures from, from Greek directly into English and from the Hebrew into English as well. His New Testament translation from Greek to English was published in somewhere around 1553-35, sorry, which prompted Tyndale to tackle this project in twofold. What was on his heart was simply this. Firstly, he saw the ignorance of the local clergy. They were standing up and they were preaching stuff that was not consistent with the word of God. The other thing that was on his heart was this, that he saw the dominance of the established church who were knowingly keeping the people in ignorance to God's word. So in so doing, they could not, and they did not, and they couldn't tell anything what was truth from what was being said. So Tyndale decided to translate the Bible into English and try to get it into the hands of the ordinary people. One of the most famous quotes he said was simply this. He said to some clergymen, if God spare my life, uh, many years passed. Now, God didn't spare because actually after he finished his work, he was actually um, killed. He was actually um, strangled and then burnt at the stake. But he said, if God spare my life, I will cause a boy that drives the plow. Do you get that, farmer? The boy that drives the plow. That he shall know more of the scriptures than you do. And you know, that's exactly what he did by putting the word of God in the hands of the common people. Tyndale believed that every English-speaking believer should have a Bible in the English language. Can I just say, in great respect to the Lord's servant, that we actually owe an awful lot of debt to Mr. Tyndale and men and women like him. According to most recent statistics, I can't say statistics, so I won't say it again, the Bible is still the most printed, sold book ever. Somewhere in the region of five billion copies have been printed. Isn't that amazing? The problem in this country and many other countries in the West is not the fact of owning the Bible. The problem is understanding and applying the Word of God. The truth is there are millions and millions of Bibles in homes, but those who truly understand what is actually in the Bible are far and few between. Charles Spurgeon famously said that there is 
enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation on it. Frightening thought, isn't it? The problem was a similar problem in Jesus' day. Not that they had their Bibles, because they didn't. The common people didn't. But the scriptures and the Pharisees, which, or the scribes, sorry, and the Pharisees, they had some form of the Old Testament available to them, but it's clear in many instances that they didn't know, they didn't have any idea at all of what the scriptures were saying. If they did have any idea, let me assure you, they would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, wouldn't they? There is enough evidence in the Old Testament to point to the truth of who Jesus is. But they didn't understand even their own scriptures. What most people didn't realize is that the ability to understand the word of God is something that only God can give to us. God will only give this ability to those who really are interested in truth and really desire a relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this clearly written this morning. Turn back, if you would, to Mark 4. We're going to spend our time here this morning. And also this evening, we'll look at this first parable this morning and then these next two or next three this evening, God being our helper. Now, Now, Jesus, who is the Word of God, is teaching the Word of God here, but he's only permitting certain people to understand what he is teaching He is surrounded by these huge crowds. On occasion, they were pressing in on him so greatly that he he feared for his own life on occasion. He had to escape. But it's not the majority who are there that he permits to grasp his, his word. It is a very small minority whose heart's desire is to know him, to know his word, and thus live by the faith that they needed to put in him and thus bear fruit in keeping with his word. And so you notice there in verse 1, it says there that Jesus was teaching again by the sea or by the lake of, uh, of Galilee. The fact that he was preaching to this huge crowd does not mean that the huge crowd were accepting him or even accepting God's word. This seashore on so many occasions, as sometimes the, 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 the hills did, became his, his platform in which he would speak. The crowd was so large that he had to get into the boat, not in order to escape as he did on other occasions, but in order to use the boat as his his pulpit, the platform in which he would speak to these people as they gathered. But what he does something, he does something very interesting here, is he goes from plain teaching, which he'd been doing previously, to teaching in parables, to parabolic teaching, that word parable, you know what it means, don't you? It, 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 it's, it's to illustrate something by comparison. It's the word parabole, it, it's, it's to come alongside. So to teach something which sheds light on something else as the two things come together, it's it sort of being almost said that you teach something in the natural to illustrate something which is spiritual, you know? So the two come together. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And verse 3 begins with these two commands that he begins, this entire command. He says, look at what he says there. You listen, and then he emphasizes it again. You behold. In other words, he's saying to these people, listen, I've got something that is important that you need to hear. Now sit up and listen. He's using this combination because Jesus is trying to to, to make sure that his, his listeners know that this is a really, really serious point. 
and what is it that he wants them to look at? What is this serious point? Well, it's a story about a sower who sows a seed. Or maybe it might actually be better to say that it's a story about different types of soil. This would certainly get the intention of the a crowd because who were there, because many of them were, were much more in tune with, the, with agriculture than we are today. I'm, I'm glad that we've got farmers in the community today, and it's important that we do have them, pray for them, and support them as well. Do you know, there was a massive, I don't know whether you know this, but there was a massive suicide rate amongst farmers. Now, some say it's because they actually spend, can spend an awful lot of time on their own, I don't know what that is, but what I do know is this, is that Jesus is the answer. Let's pray for the brother as he bears witness to those who are serving us in, in, the, in our community. But this word certainly would have brought the attention to these people because they were so familiar. They themselves may well have had a plot of land, and you could almost see, can't you, the sense, this is conjecture here, okay. When I say this with our folks at our home gate, I say this is philosophy. So this is Phil's philosophy. You know, this is, this is conjecture here, but you could almost imagine it, couldn't he? Jesus just saying, behold, and everybody looked. I thought somebody might have looked then, but you didn't. Behold, and, and he points to, you know, just on the sea, and he, he points up, and, and you could actually see there that there's a farmer doing exactly what he's just about to, to, to illustrate for them. This land around the Sea of Galilee was a fertile agricultural ground, and so this parable would have, it would have meant that the people could really relate to it. This parable is actually one that tells a story of what happened to a seed when it is sown. And there are four different parabolic results to the seed that we see this morning. And this is where I click the PowerPoint, which it did bring. Could you imagine it'd be a lovely PowerPoint up there? But my pen drive doesn't talk to your computer for some reason, so don't ask me why. <laughs> but click. <laughs> the first thing we notice there in verse 4 is that the sower's seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Now, there were paths on the roads in between the fields and when the sower would go out and just scatter his seed as he would on the ground, some of the seed would land on the road or path and the birds would come and eat them. The second result is there in verse four, 5 to 6. Some of the sower's seed fell on rocky ground and immediately it sprang up with no depth. Much of the ground in Galilee, if you've ever been there, is, is quite rocky. And even when there is some form of some thin layer of, of topsoil um, underneath it, it, it's not very, very far down that you'd actually need some real heavy rock. And you know yourself, the, 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 the seed, the, the roots would not be able to penetrate through that rock. So it couldn't germinate properly. So the ground did not have enough soil. So therefore, when the sun came out, the roots were scorched and the plant withered away. Verse 7, look what it says. The third thing there, the third result. Some of the sower's seed fell among the thorns and the thorns choked the life and there was no crop. There seems to be a, a progression in things as it relates to failure. First seed eaten up before it germinates. The second has a bit of germination, but then withers away. But then this third actually sprouts, but eventually it's choked up by the weeds that are grown around it. The fourth result is here in verse 8. Some of the sower's seed fell on good soil, and it pr produced a yield and a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Now, naturally, 100 would be better, wouldn't it? But the truth of the fact is, 
is there was some growth. There was some fruit of the endeavor of the farmer. But it is clear from all these analogies that if we use it as a percentage, which I don't think it is the best, most commentators say you can, I'm not sure whether you can, but it's sufficient to say if you use this illustration that 75% of all the seed that was sown didn't produce and didn't prosper. Now, actually, those averages, I'm looking at my farmer friend again, not very good averages, them. You want to do something about that, don't you? If that's what your average is here, it's, it's really, really bad. But what is clear from these illustrations is that the determination factor for a good crop depends a great deal on where the seed lands. Having saying this parable, the Lord Jesus then closes by saying, verse 9 together, he who has an ear, let him hear. Now, I love this phrase that Jesus uses on so many occasions. What it teaches us is that it's just because someone audibly hears something, it doesn't always mean that it penetrates into their heart and mind. We can so often be hearers of the word, but not doers of it. And Jesus is saying, listen, you who has a real ear to hear, let him hear and let him do something about it. And what we see from this is all of this is that the sown seed that is scattered by the sower Three of the four areas do not have a lasting fruitful result. Can I just say this in love as well and gently to those of us who are evangelists at heart because we can take encouragement for this. Those of us who have a heart for the lost in our evangelism can sometimes become very discouraged by a lack of fruitfulness. Do you know what I mean? We work and we sow and we see no evidence of it. And, and, and it is true. It is true to say that we so often say, ah, well, we just, we just sow the seed and we leave it over to the Lord. And, and there's an element of truth in that. However, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to recognize that the majority of the folks will never, ever respond to the gospel truth. Now, I know that breaks my heart. I hope it breaks yours. And I know it breaks the Father's heart as well. But folks, that is the truth. The truth is that more people reject the truth than accept it. But that doesn't mean that we are freed from the responsibility of telling. We're not so here, may I say, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm still the newbie, you know, Dickie, because I can get away from saying things. We're not so far through in our Calvinistic theology, are we? That we actually are so hyper-Calvinistic that actually says, well, do you know what? God is going to save those who are going to save, be saved anyway, so we'll just sit back and not evangelize. I hope we're not that far away, are we? I hope we also hold true to the word of God where it says this, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. How will they know unless someone tells them? Just because we sometimes live with the reality the folks won't believe. I hope you're like me. I'm not just doing this to blow my trumpet in any way, but I do hope that you've always got a whole load of Bible tracts to give away in your pocket somewhere or in your purse, ladies. 
Because God gives us some fantastic opportunities to share the gospel, doesn't he? I'll leave them for you, okay? Just in case you need some. There's a, in fact, there's a million pounds for you. doesn't negate the responsibility that is ours to share the good news of the gospel just because we know that God will save those who he will save just the fact that we know that maybe 75 or even more of a percentage may not come to Christ we still do it don't we for the sake of those who will that was an addition that I'm not going to charge you for that one Vicky that wasn't part of the word this morning but there is one true interpretation to this parable and if we don't get it we can invent our own application if we so want to, as many people do. You know, you've heard the story, don't you? Lord, speak to me today. I really, really want to hear your word. Uh, and, and Judas went out and hung himself. No, Lord, Lord, I need, really, really need to hear your word today. Go out and do likewise. You know, we're not that sort of superstitious that we believe in that sort of way about this. But folks, we know that there is only one interpretation of the Bible. And there's only one interpretation of this text and we need to take it in context of what God is saying. Let me just say, if we don't, we can take it however we want. You know what it says, don't you? That a context taken out of context becomes a true text. In other words, you can make it as a proof text to make it say whatever you want. You see, let me give you an example. A farmer might look at this particular parable and say well do you know what the parable is about don't you it means i need to be careful about my sowing it means that i need to sow in a more you know in, in, in a better way make sure that i'm not wasteful a politician who would read this particular parable would say well do you know what it means don't you i need to put more education into the farming system make sure that the farmers are well educated in how to farm correctly and in the hope that as a result of that i'll get re-elected a salesman, a salesman would actually look at this parable and he would say, do you know what we need to do is we need to make sure that that farmer has got better equipment, better fertilizer, and that, so that the farmer can improve his chances of getting a better, uh, a, a, a better yield. If a technological company would look at this parable, he would say, do you know what we need to do? We need to develop better ways in which we can test the soil. If a reporter hears this parable, he would say, do you know what? I need to write a story about the sheer waste of seeds in this country. Can you see how we can interpret in our own ways, according to our mindset, according to which glasses we're wearing? And that is why Jesus says there in verse 9, he who has it here, let him hear. In other words, there is a true and an accurate interpretation of this parable, and those who hear it and comprehend it need to get it. This pointed statement of the Lord Jesus Christ proves that people can fumble around with the Bible all of their lives and not have a clue of what it's actually really said. There is a big difference between listening with ears and understanding with the heart and mind. And so verses 10 and 12 are critical in this. As soon as the followers are alone with him, along with the 12, they begin asking him about this parable. We don't know the actual number around him. But it was a much smaller group than that massive crowd. This was those who he'd referred to as being his family. If you turn back to 
Mark 3 and 34 and, and 35, remember that occasion when his mother and his brothers came and they, they accused him of losing his mind. In fact, some of the Pharisees and the, and the scribes were actually called, were referring to him as being a, a demon-possessed as well. But his family thought that he'd lost his mind, he'd had a mental breakdown or he was going insane in some way. And so Jesus said to them, who is my family? And he looked at his disciples and those closer around with the disciples and he says, these are my family. And so he turned to these of his family and he says, as they say to him, give us understanding. Let us, let us understand what you're saying to us. You see, fruit-bearing people always want a precise understanding of God's word. It's not just enough to read it and to make it say what you want it to say. Fruit-bearing followers of Jesus Christ want to know what God is telling them. And so verse 11, Jesus says, the kingdom program of God is a mystery. Now, a mystery in the Bible is something that must be known, made known to us by God. It is not referring to something unknowable. A mystery in Scripture is something that God willingly reveals to us as we desire to know him and to know more of his truth. But this is only done through divine revelation, through the Spirit of God giving us understanding of his Scriptures. And so Jesus says in verses 11 and 12 that the reason he spoke in a parabolic language is so that the, those of his family of God, those who were the closest to him, could understand truth pertaining to the kingdom of God. But those outside his family, those who were just there for the ride, those who were really, really, do you know what the most of people just wanted? They wanted their own needs to be met. You know, after he fed them on the 5,000, do you know when they followed him? They didn't follow him for his teaching. Do you know what they followed him for? Another free meal. No, Jesus said, no, the reason why I'm teaching this is as to those who really, really want to know, who have a real desire, will come and ask. If you have a passion to clearly and accurately know God's word, you thank God because most don't. The word of God is supernaturally imparted to us. And it's the word of God that has the power to convict and to save and transform lives. And verse 13 opens up with two questions Jesus asks his followers and his disciples. Now this question is designed to communicate to them that if you are having a hard time with this parable, then you really, really have, will have a problem with the rest of the things he's going to teach them. This is very still early on in Jesus' ministry. We're only in Mark 4 here. We've got another couple of years to go. But now the rest of this passage in verse 14 through to 20 now, Jesus gives them the interpretation of this parable. Verse 14, what we learn here is that the sower sows seed, and the seed he sows is the word of God. And so on the basis of what Jesus says, we can make four assumptions here, or four observations just from this statement. The first observation is this, that the sower is the one who is presenting the word of God. Now, certainly, there's an immediate application to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sower. But he's also saying anybody who has the word of God, who then gives it, distribute, distribute it to others, they are the sower as well. So I'm the sower this morning. You are the sower if you're in this position, or you are the sower in your evangelism and what you're going out to tell others. The sower is the one who accurately presents the word of God. The second observation is this, that the seed is the word of God itself. 
This is what must be sown, the word of God. The problem is not the seed. The seed, the seed sown was good. There was no deficiency in that seed. There was only a deficiency in the soil. The job of the sower is to sow the word of God regardless of the result. And the third observation is this, that the soil is the heart. What is going on in a person's heart when he hears the word of God? And the fourth and final observation is the sower and the seed and the soil parable has to do with God's kingdom work. This is how things work in the program of God. And you know, this is how they'll, they will work until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Until Jesus Christ establishes God's kingdom on earth, this way will happen. And as a result of this way, there will be certain results. Certain reactions to the sowing of the word of God. The first reaction is seen for us there in verse 15. When some people hear the word of God, Satan comes and he immediately takes away its effect. There are people who go to places of worship, services, churches, just like this, up and down our country, who hear the word of God, but just as soon as they hear it, their heart is so hard that it never has an effect on them at all. You've seen it, haven't you? I've seen it. Might even be as harsh to say, I can see it even this morning. In fact, we could say that they are more in tune with Satan than God. Ooh, that's a hard thing to say, Pastor. Satan and his forces are right there to see it and to make sure that they do not understand the word of God so that they can apply it in their lives. Satan does not want God's word affecting any person's heart and mind. For those of you who are of the older brethren amongst us, can you remember C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? For those of you who are the younger brethren, make sure you read it. It's fantastic. It's, it's, it's a, a lesser demon talking to a, an uncle, a greater demon. And it shows you how so often the plan and the purpose of Satan to, to, to sow tears into the church, but also to discourage people from believing the word of God. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Amen. But we still have a powerful adversary. And he's seeking to destroy the word of God. As we sung this morning from that lovely song, I've never sung that one, sung that one before, but it made reference to the fact that, that there, there is a battle for the word of God. There is a battle for the truth right at the moment. And Satan has been doing that from the very beginning. Remember what he said to Eve? Did God really say... What he was doing is sowing that seed of doubt for Eve to question the word of God. Don't you think Satan is doing exactly the same thing today? He was a liar from the beginning and he's still a liar today. The second reaction, when some people hear the word of God, they have some positive emotional reaction to it. But when the trials and the troubles hit, they immediately fall away. Emotional reactions to church services prove absolutely nothing don't miss what Jesus is saying here the way you move into a real relationship with God is through a knowledge with understanding of God's word and his truth not through feelings 
There are, there are some people who like to be around the Word of God because of the emotional kick that they get it, because of the happy, clappy feeling that they get out of it. Oh, they receive it, and, and when they receive it, it says there that there is some form of joy. But there is the tip-off to the problem. The Word of God is convicting. It reproves and it corrects. And the word of God is to be received reverently. So when you see someone whose immediate reaction is all positively emotional, let me, share, let me share with you that it's a really, really good indication that they are very shallow and very sentimental and they've not really received the truth. I've got a really, really good illustration there, but I'm not going to use it because we have enough time this morning. But maybe one time. In fact, Jesus says these people who react in this way have no spiritual root at all, no solid roots to them. So when the fun times are over and the pressure and the tribulations come, they shrivel and they disappear. Folks, you've seen it, haven't you? This is not me being critical. This is just me being observational. This is just me saying as it is. The third reaction, verses 18 to 19, when some people hear the word of God the world and the wealth and the desires, they just take first priority. And the word is choked up in the person's life. This third group start off with, with what appears to be some initial success. This group appeared to take the word of God and grow for a while, but eventually this kind of person who maybe, if we could use the phrase, are just, they're just not there, they're just too worldly. They're weed-ridden. Therefore, the word that is being sown is just suffocated. You know, between Mark's account here and, and Luke's account in Luke 18 and verse 19 of this same parable, we learn that the things that suffocate many people are fourfold. There's the worries of the world. There's the deceitfulness of riches. There is the desires for other things other than God and there are just the pleasures, the various pleasures of this world. Those three things so often choke the word and something that Warren Weasby said, he said, if you carefully look at these first three reactions, we may observe that these three enemies of the believer which still exist today, Satan, the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, the, the, the desires of this world, those three things still affect us all today. You know, one day in God's kingdom, you know, the desires of the eyes are going to be gone. The, 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 the pleasures of this world will be gone. There won't be no more. We just have to contend with ourselves. As Satan is bound and we enter into his kingdom. Oh, then we've got a real problem on. Because it just does. In other words, we can't blame everybody else and everything else. We can only blame ourselves. You know, when Wesley wrote a story in his journal in May 30th, 1746, he wrote about a very famous pretty singer who came to hear him preach, and apparently she was very moved by his preaching. She was almost, he says, persuaded to become a Christian. Wesley said she seemed to be under such a strong conviction 
concerning the scriptures until an old acquaintance came into town. And what happened then is she was lost. And that happens to so, so many people. They get revved up from a moment of the word of God. But the world, the flesh, the devil gets the better of them. And Wesley says they go off and they accomplish nothing. The third reaction is this. This is the reaction which brings us the greatest joy. Look what it says there in verse 20. When some people hear the word of God, they accept it and they bear fruit. Now this kind of person takes the word of God deeply and nothing takes precedence over the word of God in their life. Their heart is in tune with the Holy Spirit. And when this person takes in the word, he or she applies it and as a result, God bears much fruit for that person for his glory's sake. Have you seen it? I have. It's amazing when you see it. I'm going to share tonight about a young girl who was in our fellowship, one of our young people. And that's our greatest heart's desire, isn't it, for some of our young people? You know that they get it and grasp it and understand it. She sat under my ministry for 10, 12, 13 years even. And she just didn't get it. And then one day, she got it. And in that, she's completely different. Because suddenly, the word of God impacted her heart. Keep praying. Keep believing. Keep witnessing. For God is able. Four types of hearts described in this parable. The hard heart, the impulsive and the emotional heart, the preoccupied heart, and the well-prepared heart. Four types of soil. Because this soil is really an analogy of people's hearts. Now, from a mathematical perspective, only four, one in four actually seriously understands the word of God and responds. The numbers of people who went to hear the Lord Jesus Christ was astronomical, you know. One particular writer said there was just so many that they, they just couldn't be numbered. Remember when it says 5,000 were fed? It doesn't say 5,000, does it? What does it say? 5,000 men. Didn't it count the women and children? There was two occasions. There was an occasion, remember that occasion when Jesus actually walked into Jerusalem? Remember? On that Palm Sunday we refer it to. It said there was, there was a throng ahead of him and they were coming towards him out of Jerusalem. And there was a throng behind him and these two met in Jerusalem and there was an almighty celebration. Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And do you know what they said the next week? Crucify him, crucify him. Oh, there was an astronomical amount of people that heard Jesus. But very few believed. Very, very few. We live in a time when churches are coming up with new slick marketing strategies to make all designed to make sure that people can hear. We market church just as we market products. Folks, elders, Let's not get into those things. God will bring those who God will bring. God will do a work when we do a work, when we're actually active sowing. Then he'll do a work. Let's not be marketing and presenting. You know, they even have Bear Grylls doing it as if he will attract anybody to the church. May the Lord have mercy upon us. 
No, we don't need any slick marketing. Do you know what we need? We need men and women in the churches of Jesus Christ being prepared to take God at his word. That's what we need. They want people to feel so good about themselves. But what we all need to realize is that Jesus taught that only a small percentage of all those religious people who respond are really serious about understanding and applying God's word. This is what Jesus taught. Now there is some debate by the theologians as to whether or not the first three soils are lost people who never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ or whether they were saved people that didn't have any fruit. Can I just say in love that that is an oxymoron because a fruitless Christian you can't have because if we're truly saved, if we're truly born again, we will bear fruit for the glory of God. We cannot but bear fruit. Maybe there is an application for both groups, but I can't see it. But what I can say is this, is that we need to take the word of God seriously and apply it. The more we do that, the more fruit the Lord will bear through us. So can I just ask yourself, encourage to ask yourself this morning as we close, what sort of soil is yours? What heart best illustrates you? Which reaction best describes you when you receive the word of God? How are we doing, church? It's a challenge, isn't it? I hope and pray we are challenged by the word of God. And that our hearts are not hard, but we receive it as the Lord has given it to us this morning. Let's pray, shall we?